base is locked and ready to fire, sir. Illogical. Hello again, it's Floyd from Federation Radio, and we're back again with another episode called Miri. This, I have to be honest, so far, this is probably my least favorite episode. This is one of those weird episodes that I just, I, I can't get into. Every time I rewatch it, I'm kind of like, I watch it because it's in the list, and I almost feel like I need to watch every episode if I'm doing a rewatch, but... Honestly, this is one of those episodes that most of the time, if I can be bothered hitting the next button, I'm going to hit next. It's just not that great. Now, it's not that it's terrible. It is an interesting storyline. Like, the actual concept of what's going on in the story is pretty good. So, I'll tell you about it. So, um, they get to a planet, and immediately it's weird. It's a planet that is basically Earth. It looks exactly like Earth. It's got the same structures, the same, you know, atmospheric um, gases and all that sort of stuff. Like, it is Earth. It even looks like Earth when they're looking at it through the view screen. I kind of wish they had played on that a little more. I'd like to know more about how that happened and how there's a clone of Earth. But really, the fact that it looks like Earth is kind of meaningless. Now, when they land, they find that it looks like a very, very run-down 1960s sort of area like it's a city it's got some broken cars but it's all very 60s like even the push bikes they've got the old school wheels and just the way it's designed like it looks like something that people who are collectors today would get but you know all that stuff's there except one main difference i mean obviously i said it's run down but it's really run down like it looks like nobody has paint painted or swept a floor or done anything in that city for years and years there are cobwebs everywhere there's like a bike that's crashed in the middle of the road and it's just got like dirt and dust all built up over one of its wheels as if it's been sitting there for months and months and months being covered it's you know the planet does not look good now they immediately determine there's no people around as far as they can tell well they don't determine that they determine there's no adults there's no signs of civilization what they do find, though, pretty quickly when they're looking at the bike is this very sickly-looking person comes running out yelling, MINE, about the bike. In the same way that, like, a seven-year-old would get real protective over, MINE, MINE, like, my toy, don't touch. And he comes out and he looks sick. He's got these marks all over his skin and he's yelling. And then he basically goes into a seizure and starts freaking out and just collapses he just fully stresses himself out to the point where he dies he was so ill that that's all it took now a quick scan from the doctor shows you that you know there's something very wrong with him some kind of plague they're not sure but he says that he's as if he has aged centuries within the last few weeks like his metabolism is at a rate that just is unsustainable which is of course why he died because no one can live like that now Pretty quickly, they're going around, they're searching places out, and they start to hear noises and see things, and they start to realize that there's kids around. Now, they can't catch up to the kids at first, because they keep hiding, and they keep doing their, you know, little chants, and being annoying, and just being general kids, being annoying kids that don't want to get seen by adults. Except one of them, they end up finding a young girl called Miri. Now, she's, you know, a normal enough young girl, it seems at first, anyway. And she sort of talks to them. She freaks out at first. She's like, you know, I don't want to be near the adults. Or she doesn't call them adults. She calls them um, biggins or something. It's something like that. They have some very childlike word for what an adult is. No, it's grown-ups. 
grown-ups or grumps or something like that. It's meant to be like some childlike slang of grown-ups. But um, she describes how long ago there were people in the what she calls the before times like them. They were grumps, they were grown-ups, they were angry, they burned, they went... Basically, it sounds like they went crazy and they started to hurt each other and they started to burn things and they started to go wild and then they all died, as she says. And then we sort of get from that conversation, like, there's only kids around now and it seems like the way they talk about the before times, it was a while ago. Spock already made a comment when they were scanning outside about how these ruins seem to be centuries old. Like, no one has done maintenance here in a long time. The before times was a very long time ago. Now, you know, I'm not going to go into the whole step-by-step of this story, because to be honest, it's not really worth doing that. What I'll give you a basic summary. So what happens in this episode is there's kids. It turns out that what happened, they find through the medical notes in the hospitals and stuff, that there was a program called Genetic Life Prolongation. And apparently, it went terribly wrong, but not completely wrong. It's just what they managed to do was make it so that children would essentially go through childhood extremely slowly. Like, we learn Miri and most of these other kids are pretty much centuries old. Like, I think they say she's about 300 years old. Even though physically, she looks like she's about 12, 13-ish. Like, I don't think... Well, actually, no, I definitely know she has not hit puberty yet. Because they determine... That when you hit puberty, the changes in your body is what causes this, whatever this genetic life prolongation thing was, some kind of virus or thing that they were experimenting with. As a child, all it does is extend your life massively, which, you know, sounds like that was the plan for it to go through your whole life so that they would all live for ages. Problem is, you hit puberty, and then in the adult body, and in the post-puberty body, It causes rapid degradation. That's what we saw in the person that died at the start. They had rapid degradation because their body's metabolism had sped up ridiculously. As the doctor said, he looks like he has aged centuries in the last few weeks, which is probably exactly what happened. He hit puberty, and then suddenly his body just rapidly started aging the 300 years that it should have been aging. His metabolism went up rapidly, and he died. And that seems to be what happened to all of the adults. But that's led to this weird situation where this planet now for centuries has been degrading and only has children to look after it. And these children were children. Like when all this started, when they got this virus initially, were kids of all different ages. Some of them look like they're like three and four year olds, like the little ones. And then there's the older ones like Miri, who is basically on the edge of hitting puberty like she is a much older child now it seems they still do age so presumably when she first got infected she would have been a bit younger but like even with the slow aging over the centuries it's slowly caught up with her she is getting older in fact later in the episode she actually presumably hits puberty because she starts to feel the infection it starts to show up on her skin these like blue markings and bluish red markings that show up all over your skin as you start to get further into the infection Showing that, yes, very much she has hit puberty, she's going to die, just like all the other adults. Mind you, at this point, Kirk and the others have realised that everyone who beamed down to the planet, all these adults, they're infected too. Which probably means that this virus is airborne, because I don't think they got it from being around that kid or from being around Miri. 
It kind of seems like just being on the planet gave it to them. It might be an atmospheric thing, I'm not sure. But they're all infected. So the Doctor is going through the notes of all the, you know, doctors from long ago that were trying to obviously fix this as they realized their society was collapsing. Now they failed, but that's because they had equivalent of 1960s technology. The Doctor and Spock and, you know, the crew, they have the ability of using 23rd century materials. They can beam down electronic microscopes and all the other things. They have the computer on the ship they can communicate with to run hundreds of thousands of tests that would normally take huge groups of people in the 60s, like, years to work through. They can do it in minutes. So, like, the Doctor, with his limited equipment, is able to do things that their entire society failed to do before it collapsed. So he pretty quickly determines what's going on and how to fix it. Because, again, I think this Dr. McCoy might actually be the best Doctor of all the Doctors in the shows. I'm not certain about that, but like, it just seems like every episode... He doesn't freak out. He doesn't stress too much. He just seems to always know exactly what to do, the right thing to do, and he always solves the damn problem. He's just a good doctor. <laughs> I will add, there was one line that did make me laugh. They did a reverse of the, like, McCoy is always making the um, jokes at Spock, the Vulcan jokes, like, oh, you green-blooded, or you green-blooded this, you and your green blood. <laughs> and Spock... Sort of turned that on its head today, and he sort of looked around because all the other adults seemed to be getting infected. But Spock didn't seem to be affected by it. I guess his genetic makeup is just that little bit too different from humans for it to affect him. And so he turns to the Doctor and says, Being red-blooded human has its disadvantages, it seems, Doctor. <laughs> and there's like a funny moment where like the whole room, Kirk and Yeoman, all look at, look at Spock. And there's kind of this unspoken, shut the fuck up look in their eyes, which I love. They all acted it so well. And it's a perfect level of sarcasm for a Vulcan to just throw in, because that was brilliant. I don't know how many more times that happens. Usually he makes jokes about, you know, how he is different from you and that brings him endless joy. Or how proud he is to be different because he doesn't want to be human. He's proud of being a Vulcan. But it's not often he gets to, like, throw a joke at them like this. And that was nice to see. It was kind of funny. Um... One other thing I'll say, it doesn't really matter, it turns out, because, like, after the first few minutes of the episode, they're on the planet, and they basically don't leave the planet until the final scene, because of, you know, as Kirk says, I don't want to risk spreading this to the ship, or spreading this beyond the planet, so until we work out what's going on, no one is to beam down, and we are not to beam back up. So the ship basically becomes irrelevant, other than the computers, and the thing, and the equipment they're beaming down. So we don't really go there. Which means the fact that Uhura is not on the bridge kind of doesn't matter. But it was also very noticeable for me. Like, we saw the guy, I don't know who he is, I don't remember his name, but I've seen him, I think in the last two episodes, he's been like one of the guys in front of the captain helping to pilot the ship. And he was sitting behind them with the like little earpiece, the little communicator in his ear that Uhura normally has. I don't know, that just felt weird to me. Like, Uhura should be the communication officer. I don't like seeing anyone else doing her job. That's... This is the Enterprise, that is her role. It felt weird seeing another actor there. I'm not sure why that was. This was, mind you, still pretty early in Star Trek. These were actors. I know Uhura, or not Uhura, but whatever her actress's name is, I don't remember. But she was a pretty big Broadway musical woman, so I wouldn't be surprised if maybe they said, oh, well, in this episode you've got four lines, and she's like, oh, well, I've got this show booked in. Can you just write me out of this one? It's fine. 
you know, there was a lot of, they still had their own other things going on. This was still early days. No one knew what Star Trek was going to really take off to be yet, I think, at this point. So that makes sense. But it felt weird. Now, you know, so the kids, this is one of those, I don't know what the trope's called, but I almost want to say it's a trope of, especially in a lot of older shows, they used to like to do an episode like this. Like, I know 100% The Simpsons has done at least two or three episodes like this, where they love to do the, all the adults are gone and the children are running the city, or all the adults have disappeared or they've immediately died or they've been abducted by something, but the kids weren't for whatever reason. It's one of those weird stories. Usually they're kid shows, you know, stuff like The Simpsons, where it's obviously a cartoon and they're playing it up for laughs, but... Sometimes it's more serious, sometimes, like, I think in the X-Files we may have had an episode like that once. I'll have to, at some point I'll rewatch X-Files, I'll probably do a podcast for X-Files one day. But, um, yeah, I don't know what you call it, this weird, it's almost like a trope thing of all the adults are gone, kids are running society, and in all of these stories there's always this presumption that kids are useless and that society would fully collapse if there was only kids. And look, I don't fully disagree, I mean, if adults disappear tomorrow, I don't see many kids driving trucks. Like, the full logistics of the way the world works would probably collapse. But that doesn't mean the kids would just become useless. Like, these shows and these tropes always seem to write it as if it becomes immediate anarchy. Like, kids aren't stupid. Kids know a little bit, and most of them know how to read. There's still libraries. Like, these kids grew up watching their parents' examples. Like... I have a little more hope in children than it seems like a lot of these writers do. Like, I don't think they'd be able to run a 21st century style city, but I don't think they'd exactly slip into anarchy and starvation either. Like, a lot of kids, especially when they got together and started saying what they needed and trying to work together, would probably work stuff out. Like, you know, there are places, like in Australia, there's Bunnings. I imagine if all the adults disappeared, eventually a few kids might get in their head, why don't we go to the Bunnings seed section? My dad used to grow food. You know, surely one of them has a parent that's a farmer. People, they know the basics from watching cartoons about food. Like, I don't know, I have some hope that kids would eventually, there would be some losses, but I think they'd be able to scrape out some kind of living. I think starvation and the end of the species isn't the only outcome for all the adults being wiped out. Maybe I'm too optimistic about that, I don't know. I just, all these, these episodes in these types of shows always seem to just edge on that. Kids are useless, kids are stupid, kids could never survive without adults. I, I don't know if that is true. A lot of society's problems come from very corrupt, power-hungry adults. Maybe if they disappeared one day, kids might eventually be able to fix society. Who knows? But yeah, anyway. It's just something I found interesting. Like, it's a weird, like I said, I don't know if it's a trope. I don't know what you call this, like, writer's tool, but it's definitely a thing. This is in a lot of sci-fi, a lot of cartoons, even a lot of sitcoms, I think, have done episodes like this where usually it's a joke. Sometimes it's like all the parents go on a road trip. It's kind of like Home Alone is almost an example of this, where, like, all the parents go out, all the aunts and uncles are gone, and then all face slap and scream, like, we left the kid at home, and then the kid's alone, and, you know... They follow the same thing. Like, at first, it's fun. There's no adults around. They party. They eat food they're not allowed to eat. They go places they're not normally allowed to go. Maybe they injure themselves a little, but they're fine. And then there's the inevitable. Like, they're sad. They're, they're At this point, they miss their parents. And then they work shit out. But a lot of these things don't like to go to the we work shit out part. They just sort of sit on this. Either we miss our parents, or we hate them for disappearing, and now we're starving to death. I don't know. 
I just feel like it's a lack of creativity. I I would love to see a storyline where like all the human adults were just disappeared and we got to see some weird whatever kids made. You know, maybe it'd be something like Fallout where they found a book about the Roman Empire and started trying to recreate it in the desert because society was dead. Maybe you'd find kids that were like, I thought the Romans were cool. And then like 20 years later, you've got a mini Roman Empire completely missing the point of what Rome was and all these things because it's based on a kid's book and some kid went, this is what I think society should look like. Yeah, there could be lots of fun ways to take that, but whatever. Back to this episode, like they didn't go that way. They went with this and then... Yeah, the episode, there's a little bit of a weird, like, Miri is attracted to Kirk, which is kind of why Spock and that start to, at first, talk about, I think there's more than just a child's admiration there. There's other feelings there, Captain, which might suggest she's getting near puberty, which, of course, is the letting the audience know she's about to get sick. And, of course, she does. Now, in the end, like I said, the Doctor is brilliant. There is a point where the kids, like the other kids, not Miri, but the kids basically attack. Miri gets jealous because he sees Yeoman Rand being hugged by Kirk as she's freaking out when she starts to show blemishes and infections, because obviously you've got an infection that within days could kill you. Like, that's a scary thing. No matter how well trained you are, you're going to freak out a little bit. Although I will say they really overdid her reaction. I feel like they went, oh, women are more emotional and over the top than men, so let's just ramp it up by 11 and have her scream and run out of the room yelling no. It's like, you know, McCoy is infected too, as is Kirk, as is the two security guards there that we never got a name for. You don't see any of them screaming run out of the room. Like, I get women can be hysterical at times, but I felt like this episode really ramped it up to an unnatural and almost annoying level. But whatever. That was a creative choice. The point was, Miri saw that, she saw Kirk calming her down, and she got jealous, so she ran back to the other kids. The kids, and they came up with a very childlike, we're gonna prank them, screw those grown-ups, let's get them. So they snuck in, they pretend, they went out the front window, started chanting and playing and making out like they were all there. All the adults, of course. Kirk and that ran out, like, what's going on? Are the kids here? Why have they come to us? But all that was a ploy, because as the kids were chanting and distracting them, the main boy, I forget, I don't know if they even gave us his name, but this boy, who really seems like a real dumbass, this seems like the sort of kid that drinks glue and eats rocks, but for whatever reason, all the kids listen to him, and he sneaks in while the kids are distracting the adults and steals all of the communicators, steals a bunch of the research, and then leaves. And by the time the adults sort of come back in, realizing the kids have ran off, they've hidden weird, what was that about? They're like, oh no. All the communicators are gone, but we can't contact the ship. And McCoy's like, I think I know how to cure this, but without the ship's computers to help me with the final stage of research, I can't do this. So Kirk goes after him and blah, 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 blah. After a weird, like, run-in with the kids where they almost bonk him to death, as they say, because they've all got sticks and they're like, bonk, bonk, bonk. That's what grown-ups do. That's what we're going to do back. You know, they beat him up a bit, he's got a bit of blood on his face, but at the end of the day, he calms them down with a discussion of, like, you're out of food. He points out that their ship has done scans, like, there's only about six months of food roundabout left. You've eaten everything over the last few centuries, all the tin food, all the things that were growing, all the things you could eat, you're running out. Pretty soon, you're all going to hit puberty. A lot of you are going to die, and then the ones that are younger, what are the little ones going to do? Because there are still kids there that, although they're, like, 300 years old... Presumably they must have been like newborns or very young when this started because at this point they're like little kids. They're like six and seven. 
He's like, what's going to happen to them when all of you older kids die? There's no grown-ups. There's no food. They're all going to starve to death in the next few months. Is that what you want? And he sort of, you know, talks them down using a bit of logic. Something that probably would have made Spock proud, that speech, actually, had he been there. But, um, yeah, eventually the kids, in their own childlike way, are like, alright, fine, we don't want the other kids to starve, and they give back the stuff, and McCoy cures it. We then get a little discussion about how all the kids are being cured, so presumably they're just going to start to age normally, which is going to be interesting. I'd be... This is one of those planets that I would love them to go back to again, because, like, what happened here now? They were 1960s technology, but the Federation is now sending... (laughs) And I'll get to that. Kirk says, I have contacted Space Central. He says that down there they've left a few medical teams, presumably nurses and stuff that are going to just care for the kids. They've probably dropped off them extra food and all that sort of stuff just to keep them going for a while. Teach them a little bit, help them with what's going to happen to them, teach them a little bit about society. But then he says, I have contacted Space Central. What the hell is Space Central? That is the laziest we are sci-fi writers and we don't want to say what the capital of the Federation is or come up with some space station name. So we're just going to say, I don't know, Central Command? We don't want to call it Command, that sounds like military. It's Central and it's in space, it's Space Central. It's like, what? come on, come on writing team, come on Roddenberry, you can do better than Space Central. Seriously. But apparently it's Space Central. I don't believe Space Central ever gets mentioned again, because that's just not a thing. But apparently Space Central is going to send out some teachers, some counsellors, some probably humanitarian workers to help. And presumably they're going to try and help these kids rebuild some form of a society here. Keep them alive, keep them fed, teach them to grow food, possibly even share technology with them to the point where they're able to get by. Which is nice, you know. I I kind of appreciate that they're not just uplifting these children from their homes and taking them somewhere, because they could have easily just taken them to a human colony somewhere, or taken them to Earth and said, we'll raise you there, your planet's too far gone. But like, no, this is their home, and I kind of appreciate they're like, even though you're kids, you do have memories of your parents in the before times. Like, if you can rebuild, perhaps one day there will be kids here again growing up. Like, this society could recover. I would love to see what it looked like recovered, but I don't believe we ever come back here. But anyway, um, yeah, so that's basically this episode. And yeah, other than the fact that Uhura was missing and, you know, the joke from Spock and Space Central, I don't really have any other notes that I put down. Just the one, just the one. And (laughs) this one makes me laugh and it frustrates me a lot in Star Trek. And I get it. They do it as a cost saving thing because extras cost money. Extras cost more money if you give them lines, and they cost money in the makeup department and the costume department. So I understand why they don't use a whole lot of extras. But the fact that in nearly every episode, like this one, almost half the ship's command staff are going down into possibly dangerous situations where things like this happen, where they get diseases and are in danger all the time, like, that doesn't seem smart. I feel like Starfleet must have a very high casualty rate for its upper command levels. Now, I'll say, living in the 21st century, where, you know, our upper command politician levels, even military upper command, like, they never go near frontline problems. When politicians go to frontline problems, it's for a photo op so that they might get re-elected. They don't care about the people in floods, they don't care about the people in fires, they're just there for that. It is kind of refreshing in Star Trek to see a leader who 
is willing to just go, I know the risks, that's fine, I'm willing to go down and help. And they put their hands in, they get their hands dirty, but at the same time, you know, I feel like there's a bit of a balance there. Like, this episode actually showed them bringing two security officers down to the planet with them before they knew what was happening. Because the initial team is McCoy, Kirk, Spock, and two security guards, along with Yeoman. Now, I don't know why the Yeoman came, but I mean, she kind of seems like she's someone who might go on a lot of away missions, that's fine. She's a decent, like, middle rank person that would probably be leading away teams, I could see that. But, bringing your head of science division, your captain of the ship, as well as your ship's main medical doctor, to an away mission where there could be things like diseases seems like a bad idea. <laughs> Call me old school, but, like, the captain should probably stay on the ship. Yeoman Rand should probably be in charge of this mission, and then maybe one of those three. Not all three. Like, maybe you'd send Spock to be in charge. Maybe you would send McCoy to be in charge. But not Spock and McCoy. I feel like you're risking too many people on the ship at that point. Like, what if this had gone bad? What if they all died? What does the ship do at that point? Does Scotty take command and become captain? Do they fly back to the nearest starbase and go, oh, we lost our captain, our medical officer, and our and our science officer. Can you give us some replacements? Do they just promote whoever their number twos are and then they become the captain? This just seems like a high casualty rate system that is not functional. And this is not an original series problem. This is an all-over Star Trek problem. Even up until the modern track, they're still bloody well doing this. Sending the captain down. Sending your commanders down. Like, McCoy is the head of the medical division. Realistically, McCoy should only be doing certain medical things himself occasionally. Most of his job should be admin. Where are the other Doctors? I will say, we do see another Doctor somewhere in the original series. I don't remember his name. He's, like, I think an Indian man. And, like, it's, it is nice. Like, they do show McCoy is the head of medical, and medical has other Doctors and lots of nurses. It is not just McCoy in a bay by himself, the way the show kind of makes you feel. And the same should be of the science. Like, where, where are all Spock's assistants? We never see them. Where are the other science officers? Like, really... Instead of Spock going down to the planet, he should be up there coordinating his science teams that are down on the planet. Kirk should be up there coordinating all the coordinators of these teams. Why are all the leadership always going down into the line of fire? I don't get it. And it makes no sense. But that's that's the Federation. That is Star Trek. They like to do the moral thing, not always the smart thing. As Spock would say, they are illogical. But anyway, thank you for watching. The next episode is called Dagger in the Mind. I don't remember much about it, but uh, we'll be doing that tomorrow morning, so I look forward to it. I'll see you all then.